Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hey guys, Richard Diaz here. Got a great show for you today. Anybody racing, anybody training hard needs to listen to this. All about electrolyte replacement when to feed, how to feed, all the important issues that we face when we're racing and training. And before I let you into this show, let me just remind you once again, we're moving to www.naturalrunningnetwork.com. You can find our shows there, and you're going to find all kinds of really cool downloadable stuff, things that we couldn't do before, and I highly recommend you subscribe. That gets you access to a lot of cool stuff. I hope you enjoy the show. Let's do it. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight, because this is a show you just don't want to miss. I'm with Jason Donald and Dr. Alan Lim. These guys are essentially the backbone, at least two-thirds of the backbone, of this new company called Scratch Labs. They produce some amazing products, and we're going to talk about hydration. We're going to talk about the importance of electrolyte replacement for sport. And gentlemen, go ahead and say hello to the audience. Hello. Hi there. Okay, that was Jason first, and Dr. Lim was second, just so that you guys can uh, can can identify with who we have. Yeah, actually, it was uh, Alan first, and then Jason after that. It was. Yeah, you notice a subtle difference in our accent because I'm Chinese. Oh. Yeah, I have more of a Texas drawl. You guys got me totally confused now. Yeah. All right. Well. Good work. I'll just I'll just talk with my normal accent then. <laughs> oh God. All right. So, uh, guys. Before we started the show, Jason came out with the fact that he was a rider for Garmin for a few years as a professional cyclist, and Alan was the team exercise scientist. So you guys made your bones in cycling, correct? That's right. Yeah, we both kind of cut our cut our teeth in the world of professional cycling, and that's how we came to know each other, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Wow, that's good stuff. You know, I have a profound respect for professional cycling. Uh, we just uh, had the tour of California just finish up here uh, real close to my home. Yep. Yeah. Where do you live? I live in California. I live uh, just a little north of Thousand Oaks. Okay, perfect. Yeah, we just actually got back from the Amgen tour of California. Uh, Scratch Labs provides all the hydration and real food for the race. So we oversee all the breakfast service, the dinner service. We make about 1,000 portables a day. Uh, savory rice cakes, sweet rice cakes, and, and cookie bars for the riders. And then on the long transfer days, we actually uh, provide the athletes with all of their transfer or recovery food. You know, this is really cool, I think, because I have a lot of conversations with a lot of different folk in respect to the needs for hydration, electrolyte replacement, carbohydrate replacement during sport, and in various sports, incidentally. And I really think that this probably... The most confusing aspect of performance is when to feed, what to feed, how to feed, what's important, what's not important, and talk to a lot of guys that have varying views on what you need or don't need. And I'm going to pose this question to you, Alan. Can you just kind of give a broad stroke of what your experience has been 
in respect to the hierarchy of what are, what's necessary when you're participating in, I want to preface it by calling a high-intensity performance. Sure. Okay. Yeah, how about high-intensity endurance performance, right? So yep. something yep. that is intense but prolonged. You're talking, you know, anywhere from uh, hour effort to maybe a three-hour effort, but very intense. Uh, you know, I'll summarize it by just saying this. Uh, if you're thirsty, drink something. If you're hungry, have something to eat. And uh, our bodies are pretty smart. And uh, I do think that we tend to make this stuff uh, way more complicated than it actually is. That being said, you know, in terms of hydration versus fuel, um, in the same way that we can survive for weeks without food but only days without water, um, the relationship between hydration and fuel is quite similar. We tend to drop our performance uh, more readily when we're dehydrated than when or due to dehydration and not due to the lack of fuel. And so uh, the shorter event, the more priority goes towards uh, hydration. Uh, the longer event, the more we start thinking about that carbohydrate and fuel replacement. So where do you start to draw the line? Where do you start to draw the line? Yeah. Um, ultimately, that's going to be different for every single individual. And I think that the best way to answer that is to self-experiment. Um, you know, there are a lot of great research studies out there. There's a lot of great anecdotal uh, advice that, that we can all uh, gather, but the nature of it is is that the purpose of training is not only to condition your body, but to also practice your routine of hydration and fueling and find out what works best for you uh, so that by the time you get to your race event, you, you have a program. And, you know, ultimately for every individual, it becomes a bit of a trial and error. Um, and while people don't often see that as scientific, the nature of science is, is not a belief system or set of facts. The nature of science is a process for solving your own problems, right? It's a mythology. And so what I try to do, at least with the athletes I work with, is try to teach them a method for keeping track of what they do and figuring out what works for them. You know, Jason can speak to a lot of that, you know, with respect to uh, his own uh, hydration and, and fueling and what he's learned. But, you know, the, re the reality for me is that um, you know, I, I like to have athletes be prepared by having adequate hydration uh, with them, adequate fuel with them, um, and, you know, it ends up being kind of a Goldilocks and a Three Bears thing. The, the line is, is ultimately up to the individual. Uh, that being said, I always prioritize kind of hydration first over fuel because I tend to find that that tends to be more of a bottleneck. Okay, so there's some questions that come to mind when, when you say all this. And incidentally, I think you framed that up very, very nicely. And it does make perfect sense to me that based on just a sense of survival, our need for food is far less great as it is for water or hydration. Um, so that was actually a very good way to frame this up. Now, I should tell you guys that I did my first triathlon in 1981. And I've been around this type of sport and cycling and running and what have you for quite some time now. And I've personally I've dealt with all kinds of approaches to trying to get hydrated and try to put back the energy that I'm, that I'm spilling out. And I'm a big guy, so my needs are different, obviously, enough than it would be for a guy that's like 140 pounds and uh, rail skinny. Just to be more clear, I'm like uh, 240 pounds and I'm an old guy, so my, my energy demands are pretty high. I also coach, coach runners, and I do a lot of long-distance coaching with, with runners and, and actually lately obstacle racers, which is kind of a new breed of athlete, and their energy demands are pretty unique too. Where I'm going with this is that I have people all the time ask me how and when and what to do with their feeding, and typically what I like to tell them, and I, I just want to get your take on it, is I'm really a big fan of time trials and time trials relative to a specific intensity, generally guarded by heart rate. And so from that, we learn through experience what we can get away with, what we can't get away with, and what's optimal. So typically what I do, like, for example, in a long run, a 20-mile run, I'll force guys to take on some type of hydration, fuel, about every 15 minutes, and knowing we're going to go long, depending on whether it be a man or a woman or how big they are, I may have them do something like a gel or something every hour. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, you know, I think that's a fair approach, right? Um, generally speaking, you can say that for events lasting longer than two hours, if you can replace at least half the calories that you're burning per hour, you're going to be doing pretty well. So, you know, first off, let's talk about what the maximal limit of fuel intake might be for the fittest athletes in the world. And, 
you know, in my mind, uh, a good example of that extreme is a rider in the middle of the Tour de France. Well, you know, uh, the most that, that an athlete riding in the Tour will burn per hour is maybe 1,000 calories in an hour. And this is an average weight of about 154-pound uh, person, right? So we know that if they're replacing, you know, at most 500 calories an hour, that's kind of the max limit, they're going to be okay. So that works out roughly to be about 100 120 grams of, car- of carbohydrate. Um, now, you know, when you talk about what we can actually process, what we can actually empty through our stomach and absorb through our small intestine and then actually oxidize as a fuel source, you're talking a maximum of about 100 grams of carbohydrate an hour. Um, that's 400 calories. So here's the deal. If um, you're not, you know, one of the fittest athletes in the world, uh, you never need to take in more than about 100 grams of carbohydrate in an hour. Uh, that's the upper, upper limit or ceiling. Um, you know, if you're, you know, say, uh, the less fit recreational, you know, athlete and you're just kind of, you know, going at a lower intensity, you might need to take in 25, 30 grams of carbohydrate uh, over the course of an hour and you'll be just fine. And most fit individuals will get away with about 50, maybe 70 grams of carbohydrate at most and be just fine. There are a lot of ways that you can get that carbohydrate in. You can either get that through your sports drink. You can get it through, you know, different semi-liquid carbohydrate sources. You can get it in through actual real food. I mean, a browning or a cookie or something like this. Um, The nature of it is is that during exercise or in the context of exercise, we want simple sugars because they're going to be the easiest to process and the the most easy to absorb within limits. Um, Those limits have to do with, with how fast you take in that food. And if you... Uh, take that carbohydrate in at a faster rate than your intestines can actually absorb, that's when you start to get a lot of gastrointestinal distress. So pacing that carbohydrate in, you know, steadily is is really important. Um, you know, with that in mind, I tend to find that on very, very hot days, if your hydration needs are very high, you can probably get all those carbohydrates by just hydrating with a very low-calorie solution. Um, you know, a 4% solution or 4 grams per 100 mils. Uh, when it gets cooler and your hydration needs are not as much, you're going to start to rely more on actual food. I tend to find that uh, solid food uh, works pretty well because it uh, converts the stomach into kind of a reservoir for food. And although a lot of people are trying to negate digestion from the process of fueling during exercise, I tend to find that digestion is actually a pretty important part of this whole entire aspect because as food holds up in your stomach and slowly digests, uh, your stomach essentially turns into a glucose strip for your small intestine where your stomach eventually paces the entrance of foodstuffs into your body and that limits the you know, potential for GI distress. Um, you know, I tend to find that if you overdo it on a lot of the semi-liquid uh, carbohydrate or if you take in, you know, very, very high concentrated liquid carbohydrate uh, in the form of maltodextrin, that sometimes you can actually introduce more carbohydrate into the small intestine than it can absorb at one given moment. It's almost kind of like having a traffic jam on a highway, and that acute traffic jam can then result in uh, water shifting from inside your body into your intestinal lumen, and that can cause GI distress, bloating, and in some cases, diarrhea, which is, uh, you know, really bad consequence that you see in many very long endurance events. Yeah, it is. So this is interesting. Generally speaking, when when I'm talking about runners, the idea of trying to feed hard food during an event is difficult, and people opt for these gels. And I know that taking on too much of the gels really plays havoc on people's GI tract after a while. So that's uh, that's interesting that that you say that because... And I'm trying to think, when would be a good time to start putting food in? It almost seems like, based on what you said, to, to take on food earlier than later. That's right. You know, realize that your stomach is just a big pocket for food. And it's a lot easier to sometimes let your stomach manage the emptying of food into your small intestine where it's eventually absorbed and to try to remember to manage it uh, on our own. You know, if you are using a, a semi-liquid gel or other concentrated carbohydrate, the thing to remember is that you want to pace the entrance of that. So in lieu of letting your stomach handle it, you've got to be really, really careful not to try to take in a lot of carbohydrate at once. You want to pace that carbohydrate entrance 
you know, slowly over the course of your run. So, you know, not just thinking about it every 15 minutes, but think about it every five or 10 minutes. Um, ultimately, you know, I don't necessarily think that the, you know, liquid carbohydrates are a bad thing. That's, that, you know, that's really an interesting thing to think about because it never occurred to me that your, your stomach, as you suggested, acts like kind of a drip system for putting energy into your body as, as pretty much needed. And right. having that um, carbohydrate-laden food in your stomach is actually an asset as opposed to where a lot of people think, oh, I can't eat when I run. or you know, And I, I keep referring to running because it's a different deal when you're on a bike. I know that I'm much more capable of eating harder foods when I'm on the bike than I am when I'm running. Yeah, you're not getting that mechanical you know, swishing or motion, which can be a little uh, uncomfortable. But I think that there is still some merit to having at least some solid food in your stomach that acts as uh, a bit of a reserve for fuel. You know, you can get away with the gels and the semi-solid liquid carbohydrates and the high-concentrated liquid carbohydrates so long as you uh, paste that stuff in for yourself. I think that people really go wrong when they get into a panic and they already start to feel like they're bonking a little bit and they try to make up for it by taking in too much carbohydrate at once. So, Pacing, especially early in your event, if you know it's going to be a long and an intense event, is really, really important. And, you know, I think that you can take in quite a carbohydrate over the course of a run so long as you smooth that uh, intake in over time. You don't ever want to get caught in a situation where you're taking a huge bolus at once because that essentially is, is, is what causes the uh, traffic jam that results in the GI distress that most people feel. So, you know, it's kind of like rush hour, right? If, if if all these cars are trying to move from one place to another and everyone takes a different time slot to, to, to get across the city and they all don't decide to get in, you know, leave the office at 5 o'clock, well, then you, you have smoother traffic. Huh. Uh, so let's talk about your product a little bit. Now, I, I've just now, in the last couple of weeks, since I've gotten my care package, I've been experimenting with it. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to say this improperly. Is it matcha or maca? Matcha tea. Matcha tea. Yeah. Our flavors. I really like that. I really like yeah. the taste, and I like the fact that it's got a bit of caffeine in it, and that's actually from tea, is it not? That's right. That's from tea. It's a very small amount, uh, but matcha not only has a little bit of caffeine, but it also has an amino acid called L-theanine, and that can actually help to improve focus. So caffeine and L-theanine, they work pretty synergistically with one another, so even though it's not a high caffeine load, I think that people tend to feel pretty good when they drink uh, green tea. And so what else I noticed about the product, comparatively speaking, to some of the other products I've tried, is it's not really much in the way of carbohydrate, but I definitely noticed the electrolyte. I mean, there's much more influence in the electrolyte taste than there is carbohydrate. That's right. We use less sugar. It's a 4% solution, so that's 4 grams of carbohydrate per 100 mils of fluid. We use more sodium in our drink, more electrolyte. Besides sodium, we have a little bit of potassium, a little bit of calcium, a little bit of magnesium. Uh, these electrolytes reflect uh, the, the average of what a person might lose in their sweat during exercise, but there is a huge range of variability across the population in terms of sodium sweat loss. And then we just use freeze-dried fruit for the flavor. There aren't any emulsifiers, no coloring agents, uh, no flavoring agents. We try to keep the product as simple as possible. And I also noticed that across your product line, you actually have varying degrees of electrolyte in, in your product line. Yeah, we have a number of different hydration products. Uh, you know, ultimately, there are a lot of reasons why someone might be dehydrating. Obviously, during exercise, you're sweating and you're losing both fluid and electrolytes through that sweat. So our exercise hydration mix, which is our very simple sports drink, replaces the fluid and the electrolytes that are specific to sweat. But we can also dehydrate when we're just sitting around and not exercising due to an insensible water loss. That insensible water loss um, occurs as vapor leaves our skin, as we breathe, and that doesn't really have a large, if any, electrolyte loss. So drinking water in that context is just fine, but... I tend to find water really boring, and because I find it boring, I don't end up drinking during the day. So we developed our daily electrolyte mix, which has a very small amount of electrolyte to help you prepare for your upcoming activity, has a 2% sugar solution, which is half of what you find in our sports drink, and that has a significant amount of 
uh, freeze-dried fruit in it to flavor your water. Um, besides our daily electrolyte mix, we also have a product called our Rescue Hydration Mix, which is uh, based on the World Health Organization's recommendations for an oral rehydration solution. These oral rehydration solutions are designed to rehydrate uh, sick adults and children who might be suffering from diarrheal diseases. Uh, when you have diarrhea or you're very sick, you have a very significant electrolyte loss of sodium, potassium. Um, your small intestine can also be really disturbed, so having a little bit of zinc can help with that. So our oral rehydration solution has uh, 1,500 milligrams of sodium in a liter, whereas our sports drink has uh, 720 milligrams per liter. Uh, finally, you know, in very, very extreme uh, cases, in extreme heat or when someone is severely dehydrated after exercise or if they know they're about to uh, encounter uh, exercise situations where they're going to sweat way more than they can ever drink, we have a product called Hyperhydration. Uh, our Hyperhydration uh, solution is essentially a saline level drink, it, meaning that it has the same sodium concentration as uh, our blood or as a bag of saline. Um, the problem is, is that, you know, a lot of athletes will get IV hydration if they're severely dehydrated, but the rate at which you can actually infuse fluid back into the body through a vein is uh, much, much slower than you can by drinking. Uh, the surface area of the small intestine is massive. It's about the size of a football field. So if you can actually get that fluid in through your gut, you're much better off. Um, However, if you try to cut a bag of saline open and drink pure sodium chloride or table salt, which is what a bag of saline is, you get really sick because all that excess chlor chlorine or chloride ion is really irritating to the, the small intestine, and most people who try to drink that uh, end up throwing up. So what we did is we took sodium and we bound it to uh, deacidified fruit acid or deacidified citric acid, which is citrate. So that sodium citrate is actually very, very easy on the stomach. It's actually a very strong buffer as well. And athletes will drink about half a liter to a liter immediately before exercise to increase the amount of fluid that they hold in their plasma or in their bloodstream. Uh, this essentially turns their body into uh, an extra storage container for both sodium and water and really helps them out when they're in situations where they know they can't drink more or that they're sweating more than they can actually drink. Huh. You know, I, I do VO2 testing, and uh, I had a couple guys come in to see me a while back, and one of them was complaining of cramps. He says that 10, 15 minutes into his run or an event, and he does obstacle races, he yep. gets severe cramps in his calves. And I gave yeah. him a couple samples of your product, and I bumped into him again. I did a run clinic. I think it was probably uh, three weeks later. And I asked him whether uh, it, it helped him, and he said that his cramps went, I mean, he started buying the product. He said cramps went away, just gone, no more problem with it. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's great to hear. You know, uh, cramping can occur because someone is dehydrated, but that's not the only reason that they might be cramping. A lot of exercise-associated cramping is actually just due to uh, lack of fitness. Uh, most of it has to do with a kind of knee-jerk spinal cord uh, reflex where your little muscles that are telling your body, your nervous system, you know, uh, how long that muscle is, uh, they, they can fatigue earlier. And when you start to get these errant nervous signals, you can get these big whole cramps. When we're dehydrated, you know, there can be some deformity of the, of the muscle cell um, and there can be some scrub of the electrical signal there and that can cause cramps. So, uh, you know, being properly hydrated having enough sodium on board is one thing that can help cramping, but uh, it's not the only thing. So while it's really great to hear that uh, our product helps with that, uh, there are also a lot of other reasons why someone might be cramping during exercise. Well, I get that. And I just know that for him, you know, here's a guy that he does exercise pretty readily, actually owns yeah. a place where they do CrossFit and things like this. And he sweats a lot. And it's just by yeah. nature, he just throws a lot of sweat off. And I think and I don't know, but all I know is that he was praising the fact that after he started using the product that he was able to run without any issue. Yeah, and we tend to find that with, uh, you know, individuals who are have a, have a higher sweat rate. And we tend to find that those individuals with a higher sweat rate also tend to lose more sodium, not just because the, the sweat is going through that sweat gland faster and there's not as much time to resequester back sodium, uh, but that, you know, in there's a there's a 
huge variability in how much sodium someone loses. Uh, it's not a one-size-fits-all type of paradigm. And so here in our office, we actually perform sodium sweat tests where we'll actually measure the sodium concentration of somebody's sweat, and then we can make recommendations of how much of our exercise hydration product they need versus how much of, of our hyper hydration that they might need huh. so that they can trade in the right amount of fluid and the right amount of salt. Okay, so let's talk about some, you know, I want to be careful how we do this, but at the same token, you know, we can do whatever we want to do. I've actually been involved with other companies that make hydration and electrolyte replacement and carbohydrate replacement drinks. And they all bang the drum around their philosophy and the the whys and the wherefores for developing their product. And some of them say you got to have protein in there, and the protein helps to stabilize uh, the sugar, and it also helps to mitigate some of the muscle damage on the fly. And then I've seen products that don't have any electrolytes, don't have any protein, are all carb-laden, very, very heavy carbs. And... I'm trying to be careful, but I, it's hard to be careful. So i, I got to just say it, all right? Uh, I was sponsored by Vitargo for a bit. Yeah, yeah. And they have a very strong belief that through this highly concentrated carbohydrate that they use, I think it's made from barley, you're able to That's push right. a, like a buttload of calories into the system and absorb it. Uh, I mean, like you were talking about 400 calories per hour is pretty much what you can take on. They're That's suggesting right. upwards of a thousand calories, yeah. and but they don't put any electrolytes in the product. And I, I was always a little miffed by the fact that they wouldn't put electrolytes in the product. They depended on you to supplement the, the electrolytes. And I started thinking, well, wh- why do I want to do both of those things? Why would I want to carry around some salt tabs or something to you know have that other move that I got to do in order to try to satisfy the needs of my body? And so yeah. I, I guess I'm just kind of tossing it around there in the cosmos. You guys have an opinion and, and an approach to doing what you do, and I think it's interesting that it is lighter in carbs, heavy in electrolytes, and I think that makes a ton of sense to me. But what are your thoughts about just big carbohydrate replacement or the need to put protein in? Yeah, you know, I think that our general philosophy when it comes to fueling and hydrating athletes is a very pragmatic and common-sense approach. You know, I spent years... Um, in academia before I went on the pro cycling tour. And, you know, my academic uh, education was fairly reductionist, you know. Uh, I took a lot of pride in being able to, you know, uh, recite biochemical pathways, you know, like, like I was reading them off the back of my hand. But when I got onto the pro cycling tour, I realized that, you know, it didn't really help me to know these uh, pathways or to know the science if I couldn't actually help the athletes improve their performance, if I couldn't keep them happy, if I couldn't prevent the GI distress that was really common when, you know, we overloaded them with carbohydrate. Um, so a lot of kind of the approach that I have today is informed by what athletes tell me works and using them as kind of my body of knowledge. And it's a very, very commonsensical approach. And in that commonsensical approach, there are really only three things that matter. You need to replace water. You need to replace the sodium that people lose. And that sodium can vary depending upon an individual's genetics or intensity. And then you need to replace fuel. And the simplest fuel is really, at least in the context of endurance exercise, carbohydrate. You can worry about protein and fat and other um, substrates later. Um, that being said, there's also kind of a very human component to to, to all of this in that uh, you still want to eat something that tastes great. You still want to drink something that you uh, like. You, you, you still want to kind of uh, allow normal digestion to occur. And normal digestion occurs when we see and smell beautiful food, right? So I became kind of a uh, scientist with a, a, a bit of a foodie sensibility when it came to how to keep the athletes I worked with happy. Um, we started making little sushi rice cakes, uh, that had, you know, bacon and eggs or, you know, uh, almond butter and maple syrup in them. And, you know, you break it all down to how much carbohydrate, how much fat, how much protein. And, you know, what we found was that it was kind of all over the board and that athletes were very, very adaptive that, you know, it, as long as they loved eating it, as long as it made them feel good, um, you could get performance out of them. So I tended to steer away from uh, this kind of philosophy about, about fueling, about carbohydrate, uh, protein, and fat. And I started to 
very holistic kind of Okay, so I think that's a really cool approach. I think it makes a ton of sense. Um, obviously, you got to like it. And yeah, I, I, like, I think a lot of know, times what we end up doing is we suffer in order to, to find what is told to be, you know, the greater good. That's right. And, you know, what I tell people is don't let me give you advice. Don't let, you know, some marketing material give you advice. Don't let some, you know, scientific manuscript with nine subjects give you advice that has a lot of variability in it. Let yourself give yourself advice. And, you know, if I were to do a nutritional consultation with an athlete and, you know, they're complaining that, you know, they're having a lot of problems with their fueling or their hydration and, you know, I ask them to write down all the foods that make them feel like crud, you know, I would take that list, study it, and then just write up with a big Sharpie over the top of that piece of paper, don't use this stuff, and pass it back to them, <laughs> right? Um, we're, we're our own best resource when it comes to our own performance because performance is so highly individual. And so, you know, I, I take everything that um, people advise or even I advise with a grain of salt, no pun intended. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I remember back in the day when um, uh, people were paying a lot of attention to the race across America. I mean, it's kind of a common thing these days. But uh, I remember very specifically John Howard, who was uh, making an attempt on the uh, the race across America, and he was racing against a fellow by the name of Lon Haldeman. Yep. Uh, do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, totally. Those okay. guys were, were mine when I was a little kid. Yeah, well, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, um, I interviewed John Howard. It was back in 1983, I think it was. And we talked about it, but apparently what happened was um, they had him on this really highly concentrated shake he was taking to put back the energy he was blowing out while he was trying to make his way across the country. And Lon yeah. Haldeman had his pit crew stop at McDonald's and get him a Big Mac fries and a shake whenever he got That's hungry. Right. And he just completely obliterated the entire field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was using his stomach as a big old glucose strip, right? Yeah, apparently uh, it worked. And it worked, yeah. I, 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 I see that working, and I see, you know, using kind of deconstructed food is working. It just depends on who you are and what you kind of believe in and what, what, what works for you. Uh, some people really care about the food they eat. Some people don't. Uh, at, at the end of the day, it's all carbohydrate, fat, and, and protein. But you know, I, I don't think that reducing things like that is necessarily always a good approach. It's a good approach if you're doing the math and you're trying to figure out what someone needs to get going. But it's certainly not how we're designed as human beings, especially socially, when we orient towards food. And so, um, for me, my experience has been that it takes a lot of work to encourage an athlete to even want to eat. Uh, during multiple day stage racing, which is the world that I come from, and so making that food beautiful, delicious, and having them look forward to, you know, eating their 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 fuel uh, was a really important aspect of getting performance out of them. So, having said that, I want to talk about the cookbooks because I gleaned through your website and I looked at the videos. Incidentally, the videos were hilarious. You guys did a great okay. job with that, but. When I got my copy of the Feed Zone Portables and, you know, just getting a tiptoe into what the cookbook looked like, I was fascinated by that because it is really easy to prepare these foods and yep. to be able to create your own energy product that you can carry with you based on your palate and, you know, something that you're going to enjoy eating and still get what you need from it. I think that's just a really smart and logical thing to do. You guys did a great job with that. Thank you very much. Yeah, you know, it, it it occurred to me in the world of sports nutrition that uh, sports nutrition was becoming dominated by the notion of prepackaged foods. And while I, you know, uh, realized that prepackaged foods are are unavoidable and that they're very convenient and that I use them as well, there had to be an alternative, and we needed to be reminded that we could also use real food, and that in many contexts. The real food actually works better than many of the prepackaged foods that are available to fuel us when we're on the go. Um, so I wanted to just give that a voice and to encourage people to try. Um, you know, we're 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 not extremists when it comes to fueling. We we tend to be, as I said before, uh, pragmatic and we tend to rely really on common sense. And what I started learning when I was on the pro cycling tour was that the common sense approach was to give these guys 
you know, beautiful solid food that they wanted to eat. And all of the foods that we were making for these guys in big grand tours like the Tour de France formed the basis of both the Pete's Own Cookbook and the Portables Cookbook. And so you also created this cookie dough. And I got, my, I got myself some of that, too. So the other day, I had this high-intensity sport we were going to participate in. Yep. And what I did is I, I went to work in the kitchen, unassisted by my wife, and nice. I put together some cookies. And what I yeah. did is I added uh, some chocolate chip and coconut. Okay. And I, I don't know how many I'm supposed to get out of that box, but I ended up getting 10. Okay. And I don't know whether that's a lot or a little, but it seemed like about the right size to me. <laughs> yeah, they're 10 good-sized cookie bars, right? Yeah. And then we sat down and watched uh, the fight, which was uh-huh. Gen- Gennady Golovkin beating somebody up in about six rounds and ate about four of those cookies during that high-intensity event. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah. So good I don't think you. that was probably what they were intended to be for, but... Um, no, uh, no. Ultimately, you know, we wanted to give people permission to have a cookie when they were exercising. Uh, the product for me on some level was a bit of a, a way to be irreverent with respect to the sports nutrition industry to say that, hey, you know, what is the difference between an energy bar and a cookie? Um, there's not a lot of difference between those two products except that one product kind of makes you happy and it has a higher moisture content and is easier to eat and tastes a lot better in my opinion. And so, you know, what started out with kind of a, uh, a funny joke in my mind ended up being something that, you know, manifested in reality at last year's Amgen Tour of California when we were making cookies for these athletes for dessert, which is normally when you think you might have a cookie. And then riders started asking us to make those cookies so that they could use them when they were on the bicycle during the race. Um, it was uh, kind of an affirmation of what I had always been thinking in my own head. And so we took the next step of, taking the mix that we had been, been using to make cookies for athletes, and we ended up uh, making a dry mix that people could add a stick of butter and an egg and their favorite mix-ins to make their own cookie bars. Um, you know, the other th- reason I like the c- cookies is that, like you said, it gets you in your kitchen, and, it, you know, it, it allows you to start exploring your own kind of culinary skills. Um, no matter what diet you believe in, there's some really interesting data from the CDC that says, that as long as you're cooking from scratch at home, you're likely a lot healthier than people who don't. And so for me, this project, Scratch Labs, has always been about teaching people basic life skills so that they can take better care of themselves and their families. And a big aspect of that is creating a mechanism for getting people in their kitchen, whether that be the cookie cookie, uh, mix or whether that be our cookbooks. Well, what was interesting for me in my experiment was after having made my first batch, I started thinking about other things that I could have done to just change the the taste up a little bit. And, you know, for example, putting fruit in there, which I didn't, I I thought, well, you know, next time I might try to put some fruit in. What I did notice, and I don't know whether it was just a matter of the way I, I prepared it, making a mistake, or whether it was by intent, but I could definitely sense the taste of the sodium. And I know that one of the ingredients is sea salt, right? That's right. Yeah, we try to make these cookie bars a little saltier. Uh, we find that during exercise, when people are sweating heavily, there is a, a very natural uh, desire to have uh, a more savory type of food or to have salt. And you see this in a lot of endurance runs and cycling events where guys just want that bag of potato chips, right? They want those really salty foods. And so in many ways, this, this cookie bar was designed for, the, you know, athletic performance. Yeah, it perfectly made sense to me. I just noticed it, you know, as opposed to just sitting down with a cookie, uh, I thought, ah, oh, you know what, this is an endurance cookie. <laughs> I could taste the electrolytes I need because yeah. sitting on the couch watching a fight was just really hard on me. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, in the wrong context, having that extra salt can be, you know, really bad. I'll give you an example um, there's a restaurant here in Boulder, Colorado called Frosca, and it's one of the top 20 restaurants in the uh, United States. They pride themselves on their food and their service, but in the summertime when it gets really hot, a few years ago they were noticing that they were getting a lot of uh, complaints that their food was too salty. So the owner started looking into this and, and why was this happening, and 
they realize that in the summertime when it gets really hot because they taste all of their food and season to taste, that their chefs were sweating a lot more and their palate was changing. As they were sweating more and losing more sodium, their desire or taste. And so what was happening was they were oversalting the food. So they started using scratch labs in the back of house on these very hot days. And when they were replacing fluid and electrolytes, their pet was normalizing and the salt complaints went away. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. And so, you know, that also speaks to this idea that when it comes to fueling uh, and hydrating, that listening to our bodies is really, really important. And, you know, if you finish a long run in the heat and you crave salt and you find yourself salting your dinner more than other people and people are criticizing you for that, well, my advice is to satiate that desire, right, to listen to your body because there's probably a reason why you want that extra salt or you want that extra fluid or you want those extra calories. Um, so, you know, as, as I said before, thirst and hunger are really amazing mechanisms, and so is our palate. So I got a couple questions for you that I think you might uh, uh, appreciate, and and I, I, it's going to get a little deep, but you know you're the guy for this. I wrote a thing recently. I call it the dark side, which is about lactate tolerance training. Sure. Given that I've spent the last 18 years doing VO2 testing and writing heart rate program for athletes, and cycling being a sport where lactate tolerance is pretty critical, yep. when you're feeding, when you're taking on carbohydrate. Would it not be true that if you consume too much carbohydrate, you take away the reliance on your system to convert this lactate to a usable fuel source? Um, not necessarily. You know, I mean, first and foremost, it all depends on the exercise intensity. That's what drives uh, the substrate that you use. Um, obviously, training and uh, adaptation to, say, a high-fat diet can also change your mobilization of free fatty acids and, you know, change your dependence upon uh, carbohydrate relative to, to fat. Um, you know, in addition, during exercise, as we produce lactate, most of that lactate is cleared and reused as a as a fuel source. Um, you know, uh, ultimately, taking in more carbohydrate is not necessarily going to uh, negate the the use of lactate if that lactate is actually formed as a fuel source. You know, that lactate will go elsewhere. It'll go to the brain. It'll go to the heart. It'll go to the diaphragm. It'll, it will be used. Um, that extra, you know, uh, exogenous carbohydrate will be used as well. And if the intensity is high enough, that exogenous carbohydrate eventually turns into lactate anyway. So it's all one big kind of uh, cycle. Um, you know, I don't think that, that the intake influences one thing, one one use of fuel over the other, especially when it comes to carbohydrate to lactate. Because well, what I was thinking in terms of uh, efficiency and trying to teach your body to utilize and push that lactate into your liver as opposed to just respirating it out. I, I wondered whether your your body almost uh, intuitively says, you know what, we're not going to need this extra fuel because we're getting these carbs in. Does it does it operate like that, or is, is there no research to? It doesn't operate like that because uh, lactate is a byproduct of carbohydrate metabolism, right? So okay. you're uh, producing lactate. You are, you know, therefore burning carbs, right? Okay. So adding more carbs to that is not going to change anything one way or the other. It's the exercise intensity that determines whether or not you're going to utilize that fuel and whether you're going to, you know, bring that all the way to, you know, the end point of aerobic metabolism or if the energy demand is very high, if you're going to produce uh, lactate out of that carbohydrate. Um, so, yeah, that, that kind of efficiency or relationship of, of clearing lactate uh, isn't necessarily influenced by your carbohydrate ingestion during exercise. That being said, you know, um, clearance of lactate is really dependent upon ultimately our mitochondrial density and our ability to, uh, you know, uh, uh, utilize fuel in an aerobic manner and an oxidative manner. Um, being adapted uh, to uh, utilizing fatty acids uh, whether that be by, you know, long-term endurance training or whether that be by, you know, changing the, the fuel source that we use um, might help that, but that's not necessarily something that manifests acutely during exercise. It's something that manifests over the course of a long-term adaptation to exercise. So that was going to be my next question. 
I, there's been a lot of scuttlebutt about this fat adaptation uh, where these guys are restricting their carbohydrate intake and and, yeah. and suggesting that because they do that, that their bodies are more capable of utilizing fat at, at, at whatever intensity. And I talked to a lot of different people about this, and we all have an opinion, but what are you, what's your take on it? I see these ultra guys, and, and I'm just... For the sake of being ultra, their their intensity is not that great, and the the potential for use of fat is much greater. I would assume just commonly. Do you believe that there's uh, any merit in restricting carbohydrate in order to improve the uh, fat adaptation? Yeah, I think that there is some merit, um, especially for these ultra events, especially for these very long events. Um, it really depends on the pattern of intensity that that you're going to be competing in. So if the pattern of intensity is very slow um, or steady um, and it's at a, at a fairly low intensity below the lactate threshold, then um, decreasing carbohydrate relative to your total energy expenditure, increasing fat use uh, can help. But I think that it's important to realize that as soon as the pace changes or as soon as we start to you know, a need to run faster or are in competitive events that require a much higher intensity, uh, carbohydrate is still the best fuel. So it's all context, and I think that it, people often forget that. So, for example, with uh, a, a pro tour cyclist, you have this very interesting situation where you have a very, very long event, anywhere from four to six hours, right? And so in training, we would often decrease carbohydrate and try to promote a, a, an adaptation to utilize more fat. But what we learned was that because the intensity profile of professional cycling is so undulating, you're going from high to low all the time. You're either on or you're off. That, you know, the week leading up into a bicycle race, we would have to load up a significant amount of carbohydrate for these athletes to perform. Uh, glycogen was still the, 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 the bottleneck with respect to their performance. And so we were using a strategy where we would train them on a higher-fat diet, but we would race them on a high-carbohydrate diet. Um, you know, there's always some kind of, uh, of, of balance depending upon the unique demands of the sport that you're talking about. So it's not, again, a one-size-fits-all. There's no uh, kind of general rule about it. But if you're talking about an ultra-endurance runner who is going at a very steady intensity below the lactate threshold, I think that there's merit. Well, and I think you're right in respect to that, but what I'm finding is a lot of guys are taking a little bit of information and they're getting confused with it because then they go into an event which is requiring high-intensity performance, high-intensity suggesting they're over their threshold, and spending time over their threshold for more than a few hours, it's just not going to cut it. That's right. That's right. You know, and at that point, either you're going to have to be, you know, taking in that carbohydrate real time or you know, you're, you're not going to make it because at that point you probably don't have adequate muscle glycogen on board to, you know, uh, sustain those high-intensity pieces. You know, maybe a compromise is what we did in pro cycling, which was fat adapt when we're training, but, you know, still carbohydrate load right before the event. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating stuff, and I think it's important. A lot of people don't give enough credence to the importance of this whole concept of hydration and electrolyte replacement on the fly. I have guys show up for a run, and they may have a bottle of water they're holding in their hand, which either they don't drink at all because it's just uh, cumbersome for them, or they feel like they need to drink too much of it, and they don't do anything to replace the electrolytes they're spilling out or replace the carbohydrate they're blowing out. That's right. You know, I think that it points to two things. One thing that, that that points to is that we're 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 really really good at surviving, right? That people screw it up all the time, and we still make it through. And you know, it's not like people are dying out there on the race course or having too many ill effects. So you know, there's a case in point that we do have a good amount of sodium reserve, we do have a great amount of water reserve, we do have a great amount of fuel reserve, and that we can get through a lot of these performances even if we botch our nutrition and hydration. At the same time, I think that there is this sense that we can do a lot better and that it's not about just surviving. It's about uh, optimizing your performance, and it's about feeling as good as you can when you're out there competing. And, you know, for me, it, it was, you know, about having athletes coming back and saying, you know what, I felt better than I did before, you know, when I, you know, had this extra sodium or I drank this extra fluid before, 
I felt better. And for me, it's all a relative game. And so if I can have athletes say that they felt better, that they were going faster, then that's a huge, huge win for me. Amen to that. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, look, fellas, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat with me about this. I'm a fan of the product. I've been messing with it, and it's interesting. I, uh, I'll share with you, I went out for about a six-mile run this morning, and I used the, uh, the product and uh, came away unscathed. So, so far, so good. Let's give the folks that are listening to this uh, how to find you guys. Well, you can find us at www.scratchlabs.com, and that's scratch spelled with a K. So that's S-K-R-A-T-C-H-L-A-B-S. Uh, you can also find us at a lot of different retailers across the United States. Independent bike dealers have us. Independent running stores have us. Uh, chains like REI or Sports Chalet also carry us as well. In the Rocky Mountain region, you can find us in Whole Foods. Um, so there are a lot of access points to find uh, both our different hydration products from our sports drink to our daily electrolyte to our rescue hydration to our very salty hyperhydration mix our cookbooks, and our cookie mix. And most recently, we just came out with a really simple energy chew that doesn't have all the waxes and uh, excess food additives that many of these energy chews have. Wow, that's new to me. Yeah. All right, well, look, guys, uh, I appreciate you coming on the show, as I suggested, and uh, I'm going to get the word out. We're going to give away some product. Going to make that known on the website. Again, you guys have an amazing weekend coming up, and thank you so much for sharing your information with us today. Yeah, thank you for the time and the support. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.